Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the With a Terrible Fate podcast. I'm Dan Hughes. I'm Aaron Saduko. And we are back yet again. It feels good to be in a groove with the podcast. I the hardest like, part uh, is getting started, as with all I things, it, isn't it? I feel like, uh, you know, it was uh, back in the first iteration, it was very impromptu, and I like that we just <laughs> chat every week. Or, or this is even impromptu-er, <laughs> though, which I think is good. Um, I'm sure he won't mind me shouting him out, but I was talking to our... Um, Mutual friend. I think you've, have you met James? I know he followed studying pixels, but my buddy oh, yeah. James remembered. Yeah. Good. Oh yeah. Yeah. Good. Yep. I thought so, but otherwise I would have to arrange that, um, sooner rather than later. But yes. So I was talking with my buddy James, uh, about the podcast because he's been a, as I said, a longtime follower of both of us. And I said, yeah, you know, it feels like we're finally finding a flow um, in large part, just because we are being way more organic with it. And he's mm. a huge podcast listener. And he said, yeah, you know, in my experience, podcasts are most successful when they do something that's on one of two poles of the experience, either they're incredibly articulated with research and an agenda and a thesis. And basically each episode is an audiobook, or they're completely unstructured and just a conversation. But if you try to plan something in the middle ground, it's just, it's never going to work out. And I said, my man, I think you just explained why we're finally in a groove. <laughs> so you're, you're either syndicating or only murders in the building. And there's no middle ground. <laughs> no, middle I'm Steve ground. Martin. I called it. <laughs> oh, I'm, are you kidding? I am happily Martin short. I know. Oh, you are. <laughs> and Evie is uh, Selena Gomez. Selena Gomez. Yep. <laughs> took the words right out of my mouth. Excellent. Uh, well, yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm psyched about it and it's nice to, uh, to be podcasting. It's always fun to do. Nice to be. Um, so I got to thank you, Aaron, cause you, you kind of put the bug of streaming in my ear and it's been really fun for me to do that too. I feel like, um, I love, I love content where, we're just kind of shooting the breeze. <laughs> that's mm. pretty good. So gets my, well, it's funny because I, like sometimes the most obvious lessons we only arrive at and figure out how to implement over, uh, what the nine years with the terrible fate has existed at this point, but we've always extolled and you know, this kind of analytical work has emerged from just the ordinary conversations and things that we and so many other gamers work through when they're trying to make sense of their experiences and talk with others about their experience. Um, but yeah, I think being able to actually bring that ethos and conversation um, to gamers, like-minded and unlike-minded, uh, there's something that's just deeply rewarding about that. I know we've talked about this in the past too, but I really do feel like over those nine years, I think just as more gamers have grown up and mm. it's become much more obvious that games merit this kind of attention like the the average caliber of people's willingness and preparedness to engage in in richer and more rigorous conversations about games has only increased which has been really freaking cool to see to be honest it's really gratifying and i think uh it's funny because uh, i think you and i both are over the surprise aspect of that too where yeah. now we're just like happy to see it so that's cool too <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I told you this, but yeah, on Friday on with the Terrible Fate stream, uh, doing the Tales of Praxis series, we had a whole interlude in kind of the second act of the stream, if you will, where we just mm. took a big meta analytical step back and started thinking about, all right, well, 
what are we really doing when we're talking about literary theory and how can it guide the attention that we pay to different scenes in terms of what qualifies as content that factors into a metaphor versus what's just outside the focus and the distraction. Um, so it's, it's so rewarding to have those conversations just um, as you say, predictably arise rather than being something we feel as if we have to force unnaturally. So that never works for anyone. No. And I think that what I love too is that what I'm seeing on my stream is what I know you've seen on your stream, not just because you just talked about it, but because I've seen it on your stream too. And I've, you know, been there with you is, um, have you, have you noticed, uh, he asked rhetorically that, um, <laughs> there, are, there are, uh, I'm listening like, rhetorically. <laughs> there are, um, so let me, let me back up to like five ish years ago when people would come up to us and they would start saying something about like a really lore heavy part of a game sure. that was like really technical and really like in the weeds. And we would, I'll speak for myself. I would try to steer the conversation away from that because it was like, well, that's not really what I'm interested in, right? Like I'm not really interested in the, for example, the Zelda timeline, like that to me is missing yeah. the forest for the trees, right? Now what I see is I'm more willing to listen to that. And what's resulted from that is that the kind of things that you and I love to talk about follow those observations like really quickly. I've noticed like I, I have a, a kind of a super fan on the stream, shout out random child who, um, <laughs> he, uh, made a uh, an observation that um the terra crystals in pokemon scarlet have the same color palette as the um mega evolution keystones in x and y and at first i was like yeah you know it's like a, a an aesthetic kind of thing but then he went on to say like and they both have to do with desire and making wishes and trying to you know, mm. better yourself based on something that you're trying to make manifest. And I was like, that's that. what I want to be talking about. So <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's, that's what I've, what I've noticed with not just our streams, but I feel like in general, which makes me very happy. I've noticed that in two aspects, both of which have been, um, among my favorite adventures in gaming in the last year. So one of my favorite comments, um, that I got on the book that I published on Xenoblade Chronicles 3 and Wittgenstein uh, mm. when someone shared it on Twitter. And I'll have to, I'll have to find the username because I wish I could shout them out, but I don't have it handy. But they actually um, completely of their own accord when they decided to share the article, um, they called out and like screenshotted certain aspects of the text that mm. basically redirected the attention of how we ought to be reading the game from very, to use your term, lore-heavy explanation grounded in the earlier games. And if you know the Xenoblade Chronicle series, that's the Get easiest the and most tempting uh, series to do that with. Um, but that was my point. And a lot of what I was trying to encourage with that study was saying, look, one of the very cool things about this game is that actually it takes the weight of all that background and it 
redirects you philosophically to thinking about meaning coming out of the way in which we're actually interacting with each other and using our words and expressing ourselves to one another, regardless of what the longer causal history is of how everything came to be in the world. Uh, and it struck me uh, as of a piece with what you're saying, that mm. someone um, could not only recognize that buried in a, in a book length study of a game, but actually call it out as something that was representative of where the series is going and how we ought to be thinking about games. Because like you said, I mean, five, 10 years ago, I felt like I would have been you know, screaming at the clouds if I were trying to make that <laughs> point. Now it seems much more consonant with how a lot of people are thinking about this. But I think there's there's something kind of cool, perhaps that's also happening there, but I would venture mm. is certainly happening on your stream with Pokemon, knowing your background with Pokemon and on the With a Terrible Fate stream um, on the Tales of Praxis series that I'm doing, which is focused just on Bandai Namco's Tales JRPGs, which is, I think, this, I'm, I'm actually kind of, I, I'm in a tension about this, so maybe maybe we can work through it and think about it for a yeah, second. Yeah, let's work it out. what I was going to say was, um, I think there's an interesting sense in which um, when we're in a context, when it's just a foregone conclusion that everyone in the conversation has deep familiarity with the lore, mm -hmm. I think that's a big part to me of what explains the experience you're talking about, where it's so easy to quickly move beyond the lore and start thinking about the symbolism because everyone can just take for granted. All right, we're on the same we all page. Know it. About it. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think there is a lot of truth to that because, you know, um, especially if we're talking about a long running series like Pokemon or tales, um, one of the whole reasons that I undertook this tales of praxis project was to try to understand the question of, all right, what is the, like the, narrative and symbolic language these games are using to wrestle with themes over like between 15 to 20 JRPGs, right? And, and I think there is a deep sense in which you can't really understand those symbols uh, without really being in the weeds in terms of, all right, what's going on in the games just as a matter of fact in terms of the worlds they're developing and yeah. the characters and all of these facts. But then I'm in attention because on the one hand, exactly as you're saying, I think that's very, very cool. And I think that it does demonstrate something about gaming culture that Whereas previously in gaming history, people would just be in the weeds arguing about the lore. Now lore is a common ground to dive into these, in many cases, more interesting and rewarding ways of engaging with games. So I think that's good. But you know that one of the things that we have also been soapboxing forever, um, at least since the time you launched your series on the video game canon, building a literary canon of video games, is not wanting to be gatekeepy yeah, in terms no. of what it is to sit down and that's, play a game and the, get meaning out of it, right? That's so the like, word I was thinking of. This yeah, so how do you now. deal with that, right? I don't, I I don't that, know if there's a good answer to that. I, here's, here's my answer to it. I think that there is... Uh, a good version of that kind of lore centric base that we're talking about. And there's a bad version. The bad version is when it's like a, um, uh, like a knowledge contest, right? Where it's mm. like, we're just correcting people on this, on the mm. technicalities of how a mm. story works. Like you can do that till the cows come home with something like Pokemon or kingdom hearts, especially. Right. And I think that there's a right way and a wrong way to do it. If it just stops there, that's wrong. Right. But like, okay, like Aaron, let's say for the sake of argument, I'm, uh, you know, you're, you're talking about, um, you're talking about kingdom hearts, right? Yeah. And you say that, uh, a nobody 
is like uh, you, you just say something wrong, like it's like a dead heartless, right? Sure. Then I'm going to say, well, hang on a minute. That's that's not what it is. It's actually like the husk left behind. And that's why it's an empty vessel, right? Which kind of mm. sets the stage for the entire theming of Kingdom Hearts 2 and beyond, right? Yeah. That to me is a good way to correct somebody because it's like saying, well, hang on. The point that we're getting at is the vessel idea here and how that's like mm. a theme for the story. So your misunderstanding is actually not what we're talking about. Mm. Whereas like if I just stopped it and said like, I know more than you about Kingdom Hearts or you need to get out of here because you don't know what you're talking about. That's the kind of stuff that we don't like. This might also be a really pretty case in the wild of just the importance of good faith. Um, because I'm thinking yeah, about yeah, a lot of good. Well, but really, I, and I think in a kind of interesting and non-trivial way, because like I'm thinking about a conversation that we had um, when I was doing the Tales of Praxis stream for The Terrible Fate last week. I think it was last week. Um, and, you know, now we're deep enough in the series that we can start thinking about a lot of these symbols that really do show up again and again in different games and aren't really obvious until you have a lot of the games in your random access memory for want of a better uh, metaphor and are really actively thinking about, all right, which aspects of these games um, might be invisible to us just because we don't attend to them as symbols as we're working through them. But when we step back and see how they recur, can we attach a symbolism to them? For instance, uh, and I kicked off one of the streams thinking about this because it was pertinent to the Tales of Graces playthrough we're working on, cannons. Right. Canons are not something I would submit that in most stories, especially most JRPGs, you think of as something that's rife with symbolism, because usually if you're just engaged with the plot and chugging through a world, it comes across much more as something like a plot device for you know one country to threaten another. And you have to figure out either how to fire a cannon or stop the cannon, disarm the big bad weapon, something like that, blah, blah, blah. Right. But I found myself thinking and talking with the stream about like, man, you know, we've been spending a lot of time thinking about what it is to navigate this world in different ways between, you know, first on our feet and then on ships and then ultimately in the air. And we've been thinking a lot about what it is for so many of the final dungeons to be um, suspended in the sky versus like mountains as something that reaches towards the sky. A lot of those topographical features, when you start thinking about it, can be riddled with symbolic content. And I was thinking, I'm going to get around to the point that we were talking about. Yeah, I'm but just I was interested thinking, to hear you talk about this. <laughs> uh, well, there you go. And that's yeah. one of the many reasons we're best friends. But <laughs> so I, I was talking about canons and I was saying, yeah, you know, I took a step back and I was thinking like canons are something that to me, given my history with the series, are very directly associated with just one game because they're a centerpiece of the first Tales game that I ever played, Tales of Symphonia. But now that I'm working through them all in the context of this um, comprehensive study that I'm doing on the Tales series, I see them come up again and again in all these games. And I, I rattled off a bunch of them. Like they show up um, in key aspects of Tales of Destiny, that's going on in Tales of Graces. Um, there was another one that I'm even blanking on now, I think, um, kind of reinforcing my point. But then anyway, oh, <laughs> Tales of Eternia, huge, huge, um, huge part of Tales of Eternia's storytelling, as you will see when I make you play that in a few weeks. Um, yes. But so uh, it was a regular on with a terrible fate stream, Grail Z5, shout out to you if you're listening to the podcast, my friend, um, who mentioned, oh, yeah, you know, 
Tales of Fantasia, that's, you know, it's in the same world and continuity as Tales of Symphonia. It was the first one. I think the mana cannon also shows up in that too. And I was like, oh yeah, you know, I, I know that Magitech is a big part of that. I couldn't remember if the specific weapon that they used had a name and if it was the mana cannon. So we were able to just go on the series wiki uh, and determine that uh, and confirm like, oh yeah, it turns out that's a symbol that's been there from the beginning. And it was one of the the first aspects of the game that said a thousand games. Right? Right. And so I think, I, I don't even know that I would call that a correction, which is why I started with this idea of good faith, right? Because I think perhaps part of what's powerful about having the context of players who not only have familiarity with the lore of the series, but have a genuine um, attachment to the series and a desire to understand more, is that when you set the conversation's terms um, as wanting to understand the game more, right? And saying like, let's work through these symbols, not just as idle ways to flex like our intellectual muscles, but actually as ways of uncovering new meaning in these games so that we can play and appreciate them in new ways, then it becomes a much more good natured and good faith. And I think just collaborative activity. So it's not as if like you're trying to score points against the other person by saying, I know more about the lore than you. And that makes me better or makes me win the conversation. It's much more of what can we contribute to arrive at an interesting way of reading this together, which makes all the difference. Or like something, something I'm stuck on, you know, that like, I'm, I'm going to use your knowledge of the lore to help me understand. Mm -hmm. I think Mm -hmm. that's, that's a lot of fun. And I think that my, I should go back to what we were saying. We're not being snobby when we say like, oh, we're so happy that it's gotten to this point or like we've been waiting for it. I mean, those things are true, but we're not being, <laughs> we're not being snobby. I am a snob. <laughs> okay. So but this is not gonna, snobby. Welcome back to <laughs> the difference. <laughs> welcome back to Frazier and Niles talk about <laughs> uh, with some terrible snobs. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, the idea I think that we're happy about is that I'm thinking back to like my first PAX West when we talked about like I just basically uh, lampooned Mad Patton game theory in our presentation. And it was deliberately because I feel like at that time, the kind of look at how much lore I know is where everything stopped. And it just wasn't it's it wasn't and isn't interesting. And it's so rewarding to me to see that we're past that point. And now it's like, I'm going to do an info dump on lore, but then we're going to talk about the capital A about, about the story. And I think like, I'm going to give you a great, just my, my last example of this, which I loved. Right. And I'm, I think this is, this is the turning point in my maturity where like I let it play out because I wanted to see it. So in my stream, there was a conversation about, you know, the, the connection between all of these special evolutions. Right. And, um, Somebody at one point said, um, hey, how many people, because there's an expedition that goes to Area Zero in Pokemon Scarlet and Violet that kind of starts the um, uh, the whole like terrestrialization special evolution thing, right? Mm-hmm. And he, this, this person in my stream said, like, how many people do you think were part of that? And I said, I think at least four because of the the like raid mechanic. So that would make sense. And he says, I think eight, I say, why? And he says, well, how many, um, mega evolutions are there in X and Y? Mm. I said, I don't know. He says, there's 48. I say, okay. 
He says, uh, and if they all had six Pokemon, that's 48 Pokemon. And wouldn't it be cool if they all went down there and what they found was the ability to believe and have this special connection with those Pokemon to get mm. through the terrible trial of Area Zero. And that's what made the mega evolution possible. I was like, mm. that is a cool idea. That is right? very cool. And, yeah. and what I love about it, so shout out random if you're listening, what I love about it is it is a very cool lore idea, but it's also resonant with the themes that I'm interested in, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And I think that like, I don't care if that's true or not. The fact that that idea came about is so, that's what I play video games for. So I thought that was, mm -hmm. that was cool. And I'm happy that that seems to be the natural progression of things where we are now. No, a thousand percent. And I think it's, it's worth mentioning too. Um, it's kind of, I, I think it was inevitable that gaming would reach this point. And I think mm. it's a testament to gamers because uh, one of the ways in which I've tried to describe what we do it with a terrible fate, especially in the last couple of years is I think it really is a kind of meta game that you can play with games in terms of thinking about how to understand the stories that you engage with in different ways and to play different games with them, right? Uh, which is something that is so um, ubiquitous in the experience of gaming that it might seem totally banal or even invisible to gamers, the fact that we mm. can play games for different reasons, right? But think about the difference between going into a game for the sake of getting the win versus for the sake of just having a fun time with your buddies versus for the sake of just having a story. Like there are so many different um, motivations that we can put on our plate in terms of how it is we're playing a game and what we want to get out of it. And I think similarly, right, like we can play games to uncover the lore and understand that. And especially in games that make a game out of that, you know, something like uh, a Dark Souls, on one mm -hmm. reading of Dark Souls, right? Like it can be a fun kind of mystery game to put together the different pieces of what they don't explicitly tell you, but they give you a lot of hints to. Um, but just so, like you can play plenty of really rewarding interpretive games uh, trying to drive like the thematic content of what it is that the game is saying, or as you say, what it's capital A about, uh, where the lore can be not the final reason according to which you're engaging in interpretation, but one more arrow in your quiver for getting at what you're actually interested in. Just different activities, I think. Yep, and all good things. Well, yeah. from the sublime to the ridiculous um i i want to <laughs> shift our focus to current events i have two uh things that i want to bring to your attention one of them you're already semi-aware of which is the game awards but the second thing is something i know you know nothing about so we're going to have to i'll, I'll give a little bit of a background on it and i'm socrates um, bro i don't know anything about anything, anything. <laughs> especially internet nonsense which is great where, i get to i, I don't know hemlock. if <laughs> Uh, if if it were a video podcast, you I could make a joke about how I'm drinking water, but it's actually hemlock. But I, I don't know if that scans in an audio format. I guess listeners can tell. Got me. a big big milk milk jug full of hemlock over uh, there. Okay. It's it's the uh, the second character on my Tales of Praxis stream every night. Everyone knows it. It's great. Yeah. Be just a very serious JRPG scene, and I'll be chugging a half gallon of water during it. I'm sure that's what I'm mostly bro. known for. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I don't know if we've mentioned it on the stream before, but um, maybe some of our listeners will be able to relate to this. I 
will be the first to admit that I know nothing about internet culture, but there's a strategy to it. It's because I have a best friend who is terminally toxically uh -huh. embedded yeah. in everything internet culture. <laughs> and so I can just use him as a built-in yes. filter completely shamelessly. Well, so I only get the best of the garbage. Oh, uh, if you could see the other side of this filter. Um, <laughs> I but, don't um, want to. <laughs> it's uh oh man. But yeah, so I want to talk about um the completionist um, situation. And I'm deliberately not calling it drama because uh, that's what people on YouTube are calling it. And it is a, I think, um, well, I'll get into it, but it's, it goes beyond just, you know, something to talk about on the internet. So first I want to talk about the game awards briefly. It was fine. <laughs> it's <was> good. <laughs> okay. I streamed, I streamed them. Um, and uh, thanks to all who dropped by. And uh, I think, you know, I, I did Miyazaki's bizarre shadow show up. I mean, that was the number one question no, after our last conversation. No, he didn't. Uh, but there was there was enough weird stuff that happened anyway. Um, great. And it's kind of you know I'm I'm doing like the double filter of it because the internet and Twitter have already kind of filtered through a lot of the thoughts that I had in real time. Um, but I mean, so first of all, I really I've said this I said this last time. I really enjoy the game awards. I think it's great that it's as big as it is and that um, it's a place for game devs and people who work on games to come together and um, have a, a nice night for themselves. It's like an industry night. So that's great. Um, but I think that the, uh, the problems that were very apparent in this one is that there seems to be a pivot to um, courting Hollywood and trying mm. to get more traditional media involved in the the example that everybody pointed to which felt very apparent when you watch the show is that so there's a couple things going on one last year i mentioned that christopher judge the voice of kratos um had a an acceptance speech that went on for a very long time and eventually they started playing him off they didn't play people off before that uh -huh. so this year um he came out to uh present that award or an award, I can't remember what he presented, but he was the first one to come out and, uh, you know, they made a joke of it, which was great. Like he, um, you know, he like said like one word and they started playing him off, which was really funny. <laughs> pretty um, funny. yeah, but he was, you know, really good sport about it. And he yeah. took a jab at call of duty, which was hilarious. He's like, ah, you know, um, my speech was longer than the call of duty campaign uh, this year. So like, that's, that was pretty good. And you could, and it cut to like the call of duty people and they were just so angry anyway. So, <laughs> um, love Chris judge, like let him, let him talk the whole time. I don't care. But so they did that as a joke. Right. But then yeah. you started noticing that like when people were winning awards, they were playing it so fast. Like they would, they would talk like for 30 seconds and then the oh. music would kick on. And, um, were they trying to make it more digestible for short clips on Twitter or something? Do you reckon? No, I think they were just trying to, I think they were trying to move it along at a clip, which is not necessarily a problem because the game awards are long and it is mm. a lot of, um, trailers and world premieres. And then the awards are kind of like sandwiched in between them. So at first, I was thinking, okay, they're doing this as a deliberate choice to speed things up um, and try to make the try to make it kind of happen a little bit quicker. Mm. But then, what would happen is, uh, like Marvel people showed up, like Anthony Mackie 
and Simu Liu showed up and they just talked forever. And like Anthony Mackie was, I mean, I don't use this word lightly. So cringe. Like he was out there and the best way I can describe it, Aaron is like, have you ever been on a stage and been really giddy and then you kind of get full of yourself? So you just start talking to random people in the audience. Like, sure. Have you, okay. You know that where it's like, you, you just kind of, you kind of almost are too comfortable in it. So you start like pointing at people and saying things. And yeah. Like you metamorphose into a horrible monster of crowd work. Yes. Like that's out exactly, of body experience. That's exactly what he did. So a big problem was like, he's up there just like BSing for eight minutes. And then, um, who are AGI, these people? They're like Marvel they're Marvels. Are they, they're yeah. actors. Okay. They're actors. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, uh, like if they're not Mackie the is, names uh, of characters in the expanded tales cinematic universe, I, <laughs> you I don't, don't know. know them. I, I mean, I don't, I don't know either of them either. I think one of them is Falcon and then the other one is, uh, Shang-Chi, I think. So sure. I, I, I don't, we, neither of us. Is Falcon the one with the bow? No, that's Hawkeye. They're both oh, nerds. Okay. <laughs> um, Jeremy Renner. Uh, I know him. That's him. I yeah. have some actor names. So, Oh, and then, okay, I'll get into that. But speaking of that. You'll get into Jeremy Renner. <laughs> Stay tuned. I'm listening. Um, the, uh, so like the, the big example that people used was, okay, Anthony Mackie gets to like bullshit for eight minutes, but then A.G. Numa gets an award for Tears of the Kingdom and they play him off in 30 seconds. And it's like, who wow. is this, who is this award show for? You know, like. That does it, seem kind of disrespectful. It, yeah. And so that was, I thought, a big problem. Um, but then I would say that the counter to that is that it may just be favoritism because um, Jeff Keighley and Kojima are really good friends, like I've said. Um, and like Kojima had basically like a teaser trailer for his next game called OD, which he's working mm. on with Jordan Peele of all people, which is a whole other can of worms. Oh, um, that, doesn't, and, uh, that doesn't make me happy. They had nothing to talk about, but they were up there for like 10 minutes, you know? And so my counter would be maybe it's just a sense of favoritism and populism, mm. which is what an award show is. <laughs> but um, I don't know. It just, it was kind of apparent this year. So do they my favorite. explain before or afterwards their like principles behind the timing or the limitations on things? Or is it just a complete black box? Jeff Keeley tweeted, um, because he's very uh, in tune with um, how the game awards are perceived and like the conversation that's going on online. So if you vamp for a minute, I can find his, his tweet. Cause I don't want to misquote him because he definitely addressed it. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I ask because I feel like in general, it's nice to be able to account for the principles that are guiding our decisions, but especially in, like we were saying, I mean, a modern moment in gaming that's so community driven, um, even beyond social media, but certainly within social media, it seems just doubly challenging, uh, to put it very lightly to, you know, totally flip the script on something that has as big an industry profile as the game awards uh, without offering an explanation of it. I think he's, um, you know, it's, it's tough. Cause it's also a young award show. This was the ninth year. So I sure like if they figure something out every year. So I just want to quote Jeff Keeley. He said, um, 
by the way, I do agree that the music was played too fast for award winners this year, and I asked our team to relax that rule as the show went on. While no one was actually cut off, it's something to address going forward. So he did address it, and he said, you know, hey. That feels like a very political answer, though. I mean, that doesn't seem like an explanation of why they were making the choices that they were, which was more of what I was asking after. I mean, I think the Jeff Keighley did, like, dig at Chris Judge after he – uh, like was up there. So I think obviously the reason they started doing that is because Chris judge talked for like 15 minutes last year. Sure, <laughs> But, um, yeah, I think, you know, I'm not going to get into, I'm not going to pick apart his words like crazy, but I do think like, all right, they, you know, they heard, and that's probably not going to be how it is next year. Um, but I think the underlying problem and the criticism that most people have is just that it feels like, Hey, this is the, game awards like for these people you should be like we should give them more time and it's not just Mm -hmm. not just for the speeches but i think um it's fun to have so many world premieres but when it's 80 percent that and 20 percent awards and then it's like a four-hour show it's like Mm -hmm. i don't really care about these premieres you know i'd rather see reggie fizame you know fight doug bowser over (laughs) a nintendo game or something i don't know so it seems like a weird balance of content, maybe because they don't quite know what they want to achieve with it yet, uh, to kick back to what it. you were saying about it being a young award show. Yeah, that I makes think, sense. I think they're afraid that if they don't have all the world premieres, people won't watch it. Um, mm. And I, I'm sure there would be a drop-off, because that is a huge draw. Like, come see trailers, right? Sure. Or announcements for games. Um, but I feel like if they just didn't do that one year, then out because i want to see you know um uh ben Starr, the voice of clive rossfeld from um final fantasy 16 sure. uh was robbed i think um he didn't win best voice acting um who won voice actor another deserving actor is uh the guy who played astarian in baldur's gate 3 who is oh, it's, okay it's a pretty amazing performance so like mm. good on him but also you know, team Clive, Ben Starr was robbed. Um, <laughs> but you know, like I think I watch it cause I, I love these people who are involved with these games and I like to see them lauded and recognized. So I, I don't think I'm the, you know, I don't think I'm the black sheep there. I think most people want to see, um, not just like their favorite games win things, but also the people who make them, uh, celebrated because where else are they going to be celebrated? You know, it's interesting to me because, um, I'm just, I'm thinking back to what you were saying about them introducing Marvel actors and perhaps trying to reach out more to Hollywood. Uh, and it actually puts me in mind, especially with what you were also saying about them still figuring out the format of, uh, one of the kind of motivating reasons that this um, philosopher of games I'm working on right now uh, gives for writing his book on the aesthetics of games, because one of the things that he points out as having, has uh, having happened in the literature around mm. the kinds of artistic value that games can have is that many people um, have, I think, you know, an understandable intuition that in order to justify the artistic value of games, they ought to point out that it has the ability to express artistic qualities that 
are already known and regarded as such in other media. So if we talk about games as like an interactive film, right, or being able to represent and subvert the real world in the way that social art can or things like that, right? And he's interested in thinking about the question of, well, okay, games can do all those things. But when we think about just games as such, surely there are things that they can do that artistic and that are artistic and interesting. And I feel like there's something kind of interestingly parallel going on with the game awards where it's almost reconsidering what we were talking about last week. Cause I'm thinking about it a bit more now. Um, so I, I do think there's something good about acknowledging and celebrating, um, the artistic accomplishments of games and being able to do something like awards. In fact, I think there's something that's probably really important about doing that, but the idea that, what it looks like to give game awards and to have an event around that ought to emulate something like the Oscars, uh, or right. even reach out and you know build bridges with those other artistic communities as a form of validation. I uh, like I can see the pragmatic value of that, but I worry that it might similarly be reductive in terms of trying to just put games into a box that doesn't celebrate them as such. Uh, and so perhaps maybe part of the growing pains of the event are still trying to figure out like what is what is the best way to do this for gamers in terms of what they want out of awards for this particular medium. I think that's it exactly. I mean, the trying to couch it in, I mean, yeah, spot on, right? The idea that video games um, occasionally will try to couch themselves in prior media to legitimize themselves and it just yeah. doesn't feel right ever like mm -hmm. the heavy rain is a good game but i think like there's a reason not every game looks like heavy rain you know mm. um i think that uh it's important to recognize that it's a different medium and hopefully the game awards will follow suit because i i know jeff Keeley understands that and i know the board at the game awards does but i do think that there's some holdouts there that are like no one's gonna watch kid if uh, listen here, if if there's not a if there's not a Marvel guy in there, nobody's gonna watch this Billy Award. See, you gotta get you gotta get Timothy Chalamet, that Timothy Chalamet son of a bitch. You gotta get him to present the awards at the end of it. So get Spider Man on the phone. Get me Spider Man. It's always J. Jonah Jameson. <laughs> no one will be able to convince me it's not him and him alone the, pulling the, the strings. The ten year ploy of the Game Awards is just to get more pictures of Spider Man. Oh man. But anyway, so. Yeah, congrats to uh, Baldur's Gate 3 was like the runaway winner and uh, I think well-deserved. And they had a really lovely speech when they won Game of the Year. Um, it's it something very special in a game and, and it's, mm. it's rare that I would say this about a game that I have not touched, but I'm just, I'm struck as I imagine many other people are at how many different people in my life have told me absolutely glowing things about it for Everybody. very different reasons and coming yeah. from very different perspectives as different sorts of gamers. I think that is a huge testament to the game uh, and such a rare quality for any artwork to have gamer. It also, it also seems like, and I haven't looked too much into this. I think it seems like Larian studios, the people who made it, you know, they took their time. There wasn't crunch. There wasn't, yeah terrible working conditions so mm. i think it was also like a triumph for a year that has been fraught with that for yeah. that studio to win and yeah it was just lovely i mean the the speech that um i believe the director gave um he was wearing, he was wearing a suit of armor which was funny awesome. um but he you know gave this great speech about how it was such a labor of love and that um 
it went on for so long that some of the people who worked on it died before it came out mm, and wow. it was just very touching. So I think well-deserved and, uh, I, uh, I, I'll always watch the game awards cause it's important to me to see how it's being broadcast to the universe. <laughs> so mm. I'll, I'll continue my coverage next year. There but, you go. I'm looking forward to it. One more use for the filter. Yes. Speaking of, <laughs> so I, I'm not going to get into this too much um, because I think it's just like abhorrent and it's, it's video game adjacent because we've actually uh, met this guy, Aaron. So um, the Gerard, the completionist on YouTube, um, he's the guy who yeah, I've talked to at PAX. Like I always point him out to you when I see him because he's always just like I hanging remember, out yeah. playing like yeah. DS games. Sure. So yeah. nice man. And um, recently he had kind of come under fire because um, he has this charity that he does uh, called the Open Hand Foundation. And it's specifically for a very particular kind of dementia that his mother died from when okay. he was young. I think he was like 15 when she died. Maybe mm. or, No, he, she was 15 when, he, when she got it, 25 when she died. So mm. um, he, uh, his YouTube channel is really cool. So true to his name, he doesn't just like platinum games. He literally completes them like every single thing you can do in it. And then he basically does this kind of mix of a guide and a review and a retrospective. It's very unique content and he's been doing it for a long time and made a really good name for himself on it. Um, and I like a lot of his stuff. Um, it's enjoyable and that's how he got famous. So he started doing this charity and in addition to the Open Hand Foundation, he started doing this thing called IndieLand, which was like a marathon stream where he would showcase indie games by indie developers, have them play them with him. And it's just very, very cool, very giving back to the community. So what happened was these two people who I don't think have any scruples um, some ordinary gamers or Mudahar on YouTube and Carl Jobst. Um, for some reason, and this has not been made clear to me, I don't know why they did this. I've heard that it's because the completionist fans like reached out to them, but I genuinely don't know why they did this. They looked into their, um, they looked into the charity filing, um, like, because it's a public charity. So they looked into that and saw that over the past like six or seven years that the completionist has been doing this, they had not donated any of the money. So there was like $600,000 in this charity, right? Mm -hmm. So they go on this screed about how they're, they're like making accusations that he's committing charity fraud, that he's committing um, embezzlement, like they're taking money from this. Wild accusations and then they try to cover themselves by saying like, oh, well, I'm not a CPA. I don't, I don't know any about anything about this. But they would say that. And then at the end of their videos calling him out, they would say, you should go to the IRS and report this so that he can get audited. And just calling like for hundreds of thousands of people who watch these videos to go and do that. So, And the Gerard, basis for this is just that the charity hasn't deployed its capital? Yes, which I, I can tell 
just by the way you phrase that, you already know because we're two adults who live in the world. <laughs> you uh, know yeah, that that's not crazy. Spent a weird little chapter of my life running a business. So, yeah. I, and so, my dad also had a career raising money for charitable giving. So, so I I saw these videos by these two uh, to to use. <laughs> to use language from our friend Stefan's home country, these two Doomkoffs, who I, I was just thinking like, what the hell are they basing any of this on? They don't know what they're talking about. They're YouTube people. And it's this kind of like sense of these two people are regarded as having a higher level of integrity because they give the impression that they do research and that they try to look for truth, right? Mudahar, some ordinary gamers has this channel where he basically just talks into a camera, just like I'm doing to you right now, Aaron, where he basically just goes over this cursory stuff that he's looked at, which I think he banks on people not knowing more than what he's saying to have them think that he knows what he's talking about. And then he, uh, he protects himself by saying, but I'm not a blank. I'm not like a, an expert on blank. I'm not going to be legally making this argument, yada, yada. So he always says that to kind of like absolve himself. Carl Jobst is famous for going after the saddest man in the world, Billy Mitchell, the guy who um, has the uh, world record for like Donkey Kong and has constructed his entire life around this thing. This guy, Carl Jobst, has made it his like mission on YouTube to attack this guy who I see as just this like loser who I I feel genuine pity for and I don't understand why it's so important. Like I guess it's historically important to call out a cheater on Donkey Kong, especially when he's made a name for himself through that. But like that should be where it starts and stops. I don't understand why that's and that's like, not where it starts and stops. No, it's it's I I, I don't want to say harassment because I don't think he's directing people to go like mess with this dude. But it's like I I just <laughs> why do you care so much, you know, and like call him out, let that be, you know, what you call out and then move on from it. Like if nothing changes, then it must not be that important if nothing changes, you know, I mean, it's Donkey Kong for God's sake. So let's, so, let, let's, let's take a step back and go into the game and culture about this, right? Because like, that's what I'm, that's what I'm getting at. Well, so, okay. I don't want to interrupt I'll, you. Let me, no, no, you're, you're good. I'm cause that's why I brought it up. Right. Because well, what's my, interesting to me, and maybe maybe mm -hmm. just to steer you, because like I know, I know that you are so down the rabbit hole in terms of all kinds of YouTube and everything that's going on in the internet as we talk about, and so there's there, uh, just hearing it from you, it seems as if there are so many ways in which this stuff could be heinous, and so given that it, yes. it gravitates around seemingly targeting people who are involved in gaming and especially given being on the back of, of what we were saying about kind of the trends and the more positive aspects of the culture. Like, do you see this as representative of something particular to gaming or like a darker side of how people are engaging in it, or maybe a lineage from the past, in a, a dark side of YouTube? Like what's, what's going on? What do you well, see? Well, it's all, we could do a whole, we could do a whole episode where I just like, and I've done this in our private lives, like scream at you about the content mill of YouTube and that it rewards these kind of like personal attacks with little research. Um, and I think that here's, here's what's really frustrating to me. And I, like I said at the beginning, I don't know why they went after this guy or why they looked into the charity filings. It seemed so out of the blue. And like I said, I've asked around on YouTube and it seems like 
some of the completionist fans had some questions or maybe they noticed it and they directed their attention to it. But here's the problem. If you don't understand what you're talking about, which these two people don't understand, right? I then have a lot of questions about everything you've ever done. Because if you're working so half-heartedly out of an out of what appears to be spite or like drama farming uh, content mill activity, then I don't know why, like, why should I believe what Carl Jobes says about Billy Mitchell and the Donkey Kong history? Why should I believe anything that some ordinary gamers says about games journalism or, um, you know, how game developers interact with their, uh, the people who they're making games for? Like, there's this frustrating aspect of this to me, which is, and this is, I'll, I'll broaden it out to gaming culture in general. I am frustrated by this idea that because somebody has a supposed track record of integrity that, um, at, that has been granted to them by like the illusion of sincerity, <laughs> Mm-hmm. If it bothers me that that is the standard for truth when it comes to these things. And here's how it affects video games and how it affects video game culture. Gerard, uh, the completionist, put out a video, which I recommend everybody watches, that is very legal. It is very like he <laughs> written by lawyers, right? And he explains how everything is above board. The only thing that was um, like kind of shady that he did was that he didn't let people know that he didn't donate the money, which I understand, like you should have said something right to quell people's fears. But the reason, and you know this better than I do, Aaron, the reason he didn't is because he didn't have enough in that fund to donate to a a cause that, or to donate to dementia research to the point where he would have sway over what that money did. Because if he did it in drips and drabs, then the way that he's filed, it would have just gone wherever and he wouldn't have had a say in it. Right. Mm. And so he explains all of this and, um, he ends by saying, had he like, ever said that he was going to like deploy it over a certain time frame, or as it no. came in, or was that just no. a fabrication? Great. No, he never said, it's not like he ever, to my knowledge, it's not like he did something or he didn't do something he said he would do. Right. The mm. only thing that he did is he didn't, let people know like, Hey, it's still in the fund. Right. Mm. But I would say unless the like shit hadn't been stirred by these two knuckleheads, nobody would have assumed that there was a problem with that. Right. Mm. And so generally speaking, this is just like disinformation parading as intellect, which drives both of us crazy. And the second thing that's harmful is that one, Gerard is stepping away from his um, position at the charity that he and his father founded for their mother, which I think mm. is ghoulish. But two, um, I think this is the end of Indyland because uh. no one is going to want to touch this guy because of what happened here, right? True or not, the the publicity around it is going to be a problem. And I think that that hurts indie games like i know sea of stars that game that we're looking to play that new rpg 
that was mm. at this thing. Um, a lot of big games like got their start at Indyland, and it's like a mini PAX, you know. And uh, I just think that a lot of things that we despise about discourse ended in tangible effects, not just on this guy's personal life, but on like video games coming to fruition in a way that they didn't have an opportunity to before Indyland existed. Yes. And I, I feel like the, the, the more you're deflating my high on gaming culture from the first part of this podcast, as you go on, like, I, I think one of the reasons that I was asking you about, you know, whether you saw it as something pertaining in a distinct way to gaming on YouTube versus YouTube in general is like mm. the more you're describing it, I feel like there is something that's kind of implicitly or explicitly sort of predatory on gamers in a way that we really don't like even when it comes to just the analysis of games. And I think it's structurally the same, but with horribly uh, expanded consequences when it's targeting a person in the way that you're talking about, which is, um, well, first, you know, let us not forget that, especially on YouTube, so many of the people who are watching these videos are kids that should always be said. And yes. I think that puts a huge onus on everyone. And I do like, I mean, I don't, I don't keep up with the way in which YouTube manages that, but I'm happy at least to, that when. To put a pin in that real quick. So I don't forget those two guys know that and we're using that to their advantage. So I'm just going to say that, right? That is my claim. The two guys that made, they know their analytics. They see who's watching their, their, like they know the response. They can get away with being less than perfectly researched because kids aren't going to double check them. Well, and, and even, so I, I, I think a lot of kids are really inquisitive, but also impressionable. And I, this yes. points to the insidiousness that I'm talking about when it comes to um, leveling this specifically on people who are involved in gaming or speaking to gamers, because I think one thing that is so powerful in both directions in terms of positive, but also dangerous experiences in the medium of gaming is that gaming itself is so personal, right? Mm -hmm. Especially if you're thinking about games that are in a single player environment where you sit down and you have a very personal and active experience with whatever it is that you're consuming. And so in many ways, the nature of that text, that object where, like we were talking about before, there is a fact of the matter to things like lore uh, and various artifacts within it that are expressing meaning in certain ways. Uh, it becomes colored by your particular experience with it and how you see it. And so it almost becomes something like um, a memory or a personal experience mm -hmm. more than mm -hmm. this external text to interpret, right? And so I think, I know in fact, one of the things that we have always advocated for on With a Terrible Fate is, yes, your personal experience and your interactivity with this is so important, but there are also standards of evidence to which yeah. we can hold ourselves or even just facts of the matter about the structure of that interactivity. And Hey, if we look about, look at just the different ways in which games sculpt the relationship between what's going on in the game and the agency the player has, we can discover all of these interesting effects by actually looking at 
the fact of the matter of how that relationship works and not just your experience, but actually your experience as one of a wide diversity of experiences that players can have with the medium, with the kind of magic that comes out in the conversations that you have about Pokemon with other Pokemon fans. Mm -hmm. I have with people who are so ingrained in the Tales series, things like that. Um, and so I think it's wonderful when that can be an entree into conversations uh, and various collaborative forms of meaning making, like we were talking about at the top of the podcast. But I think the dark underbelly of that is the idea that if you have someone who is proceeding in bad faith, either in terms of interpreting the game or just extending the phenomenology of what it is to play a game to the real world, as it sounds like is happening in the cases that you're talking about, I think they can sort of lure gamers into this trap of accepting a lower evidentiary standard without even realizing it by saying like, look, I'm going to tell you this aspect of this experience that you had. And because you're experiencing it in a certain way, if I can get you to believe this about how you think about this game in your own time with it, or how you think about what this other person said, that is your final court of appeal for what the fact of the matter is. And that's when it becomes so easy to lure people into making judgments that perhaps a wide body of other evidence would speak against uh, or encourage them to revisit in one way or another. I really can't add anything to that. That's such a perfect summation of what it is, I think. I mean, it happens in other communities too, of course. I mean, I think that's just the nature of YouTube content and jumping to conclusions. But I think that that angle that you just described about it, particularly in the gaming audience, I think is really true. And I think you're, you're really right to bring up like, um, okay, well, if I'm one of these two guys, I'm going to appeal to people's sense of justice or right and wrong. And therefore I'm going to appeal to their kind of feeling their personal interaction with this whole situation. And I'm going to, here's the really insidious thing though, Aaron, like it's not throwing out the objective truth, which I think a lot of people are accused of doing. It's, um, parading shoddy evidence as objective truth. That to mm. me is really frustrating. And I think it's like, I mean, to use video game terms, like it's what, you know, it's what villains do. <laughs> You know, it's, well, uh, you know what else it yeah. is? We can use philosophy terms so that if, if you're feeling, it. if you're feeling bereft of intellectual content, my friends <laughs> here, well, soft, yes, it is sophistry, but also specifically, um, it actually points, you'll be shocked to hear to Wittgenstein, uh, and one of the most interesting, um, kind of side quest concerns of his later in his life uh, because he was really interested in and had this sort of love-hate relationship with psychoanalysis, which was mm. coming to the fore at the same time when he was living and working. And in fact, Sigmund Freud and he both came up in Vienna um, in, in relatively similar situations and a very similar intellectual tradition, which forged them into the kinds of thinkers that they were. Um, but the thing that really got Wittgenstein's goat was he was so interested and preoccupied with the notion of how psychoanalysis can help people to work through things by talking them out and having conversations with people and trying to like, for instance, collaboratively make meaning out of whatever you remember from your dreams. But what he said was you know, at, at the end of the day, we have to understand those are just 
conversations and kind of mm. language games that we're playing with one another in order to arrive at a meaning that we acknowledge as helping us to make sense of our lives in a way that feels right to ourselves. Whereas Freud, Wittgenstein said, and this was where he just really got in a in a kind of intellectual fit of rage about it, was out parading psychoanalysis uh, and the overriding method as pointing to the scientific truth of the human mind and the essential nature of how people form their identities uh, and how the brain worked and was stratified into things like the ego and the id and the superego. And Wittgenstein said, there's, there's just no objective reality to that. And you're trying to create a reality that is not there where all we're doing is having these conversations and accepting and negotiating the standards that we're putting forward for each other. So it sounds all, like in a funny way, that's exactly the kind of error that's being committed by the people you're talking about. It is. It's all, it's all back to Hoisinga and the magic circle. I mean, it's all just like, all right, we're playing with these rules and you're so, okay. I have a lot. I already had a lot of respect for Wittgenstein based on just what you've told me and what I've read from your work, but that makes me feel like, you know, I mean, I think we've all been in a, maybe not, but if you've ever been to therapy, right, there is like a moment where I think you have to sit down and be like, am I just playing the therapy game with you or am I being honest? Right. Mm. And I think that that's, that's true here too, where it's like, all right, are we all just playing the YouTube game here or are we being honest? And mm. I want to wrap this up because I, I definitely want to talk to you about more philosophy here. Um, but I want to say this, I think, uh, I think Gerard, the completionist, um, had a very strong response that as an adult who understands how the world works, I think red is like second nature. So I will also say, I don't know what's going on. It's not my life. It's not my charity. It's not my company. Right. And to go back to what you said earlier, Aaron, the best thing that any of us can do in a situation like this, when we're observing it is to be Sophocles um, I'm sorry, so, not Sophocles, Socrates. Sophocles would be all right. Sophocles is yeah. also not a bad idea. <laughs> that would be, there are worse people okay. to be. <laughs> that would be okay if we were writing a story about it. But we want to be Socrates <laughs> and say, the only thing I know is that I don't know anything about this, mm. right? And I think that um, that's uh, the frustrating aspect of it to me, that when you're talking about video game lore, there's not big stakes other than an argument that you might have with your friend. But when it's stuff like this, like this changes and potentially ruins lives. And I think that that's abhorrent to me. I would add, though, um, I, th I think it's a case where, you know, gaming and even thinking about things like gaming lore can help uh, because actually I think the very button that I put on with a Terrible Fates Friday stream mm -hmm. was simply the call to gamers to reflect on you know what kind of meaning they're trying to get out of games when they sit down to play them and saying what All are right, you doing well, yeah what am i yeah. looking for lore am i trying to understand what the author was trying to express mm -hmm. am i trying to develop my own like metaphorical perspective on a useful way to read this game what is this feeling i'm getting which is also a very philosophical move simply to reflect on what is the motivation of my inquiry in the first place and so i would say also being on the outside of this debate and only having heard about it through you i think something that's good in terms of just conscious consumerism period whether it's in stories or media or just going about the world is self-consciously asking yourself, 
especially when someone with a vested interest in something is trying to convince you of something. All right, what is my interest in being here and what do I want to get out of it at the end of the day? And I think especially in the modern day and age of social media where we just, it can be so enticing to turn our brains off and consume without even thinking really about the implications of what's being, yeah, like it's a show. Asking, all right, why am I interested in this and what is it that I want to discern in it? And then follow that up with, and what's the best way to actually achieve that goal of mine? I think even being just a little bit more mindful and explicit with yourself about those intentions uh, and the method you're implementing to try to achieve them, it's it's going to get a lot more of these um, um, suspicious modes of justification to come out in the wash, I would say. Well, you know, you said, that that uh, deflated your optimism. So I'm going to reinflate it by doing two <laughs> things. One, I'm going to say that um, I spent a good amount of time in the comment section of Gerard's response video, and the response is overwhelmingly positive from the um, audience that he's built over a decade now. Basically, mm. like I didn't think this would be something you would do, right? Mm. And I think that counts for something. And um, with that said, right. Uh, I want to, I want you to talk to me about what you're currently working on because you already mentioned it briefly, but I think it's something uh, I'm You're giving me mixed in. signals, Dan, because you said no, you wanted whole... to reinflate my optimism. And then you said, tell me about <laughs> the thing that's had you in a pit of despair for the last several weeks. No, but that's why you got to- Pick a lane, Dan. Pick a lane. You got to pitch it. No, pitch it to me so I can big you up here because that's, uh, you know, that's what's going to uh, happen. <laughs> Uh, well, you're sweet. No. So, um, for listeners who don't know, I've been talking about this on with a terrible fate stream a little bit. Um, because I, I think it's nice to be honest with each other about the ways in which we're trying to game and chart our real lives as much as how we think and talk about gaming. So Mm -hmm. while I do consider myself, um, a philosopher of video game stories, as I describe myself, because I have contributed, you know, not only on with a terrible fate, but to the academic literature, um, and just, see the world and gaming in that way. I'm actually also in the process of applying to graduate programs uh, because I did my undergraduate degree in philosophy uh, with a focus on video game storytelling, but I am increasingly uh, recognizing in myself, talking about recognizing what we want and how we're trying to go about it, uh, an appetite for more of a properly academic career. Mm. Uh, And so part of what I'm doing uh, in the application process with deadlines that are barreling down in a few days at time of this recording. Uh, So, (laughs) you know, take that for what you will. Um, But in applying for PhD programs to philosophy, uh, probably the biggest factor, uh, at least that you can control in your dossier, is a writing sample. Um, Basically, a representation of your most polished, um, properly academic philosophical work um, that you have and obviously in recent times. Pertaining to what you're interested in and what you would be tailoring your PhD around. Interestingly, no. Um, so this is one of the distinctions. Oh, no. between, yeah, uh, it's one of the distinctions between um, American programs and and some programs in the UK because in mm. the UK. Oftentimes, especially at the graduate level, you need to propose like a very clear research program, and that's the the brunt of your application. Um, in American programs, uh, it's much more flexible in terms of just wanting to understand where your philosophical abilities stand at point mm-hmm. of entry, okay. uh, and there's much more of an understanding, and in fact, an expectation 
that by going into the program, you're going to explore a lot of areas. You're going to open your mind to a lot of philosophy you might not have thought about. And so your interests may change and you might develop a dissertation and ultimately, uh, you know, a, a um, job candidacy around any number of topics which might or might not have been on your mind when you applied. Um, well, that makes yeah, sense so, you say that. Yeah, yeah but interesting because a lot of people wouldn't suppose that absolutely mm. um, that's one of the reasons they also have you submit a personal sample uh, excuse me a personal statement where you can say you know th these are my reasons for applying to the program this is what i'm interested in focusing on right now as topics with an understanding that that might change and evolve over time right um, but given my background in games uh, and given the timing of where the literature is uh yeah i have decided to write on and have been writing on the philosophy of games because another really great and optimistic way in which uh, gaming has evolved over the last few years is that um, academic and analytic philosophy has become increasingly tuned into the idea of games as something warranting philosophical interest. And I say games much more broadly than just video games, uh, let alone story-oriented video games in the way with which we're concerned uh, on With a Terrible Fate, but just recognizing uh, this whole medium of games that we're engaged in from video games to tabletop games to drinking games to party games to everything in between uh, as having philosophically interesting attributes uh, and a, a significant contribution to that um, kind of evolving attitude in the academic literature about it was this really great uh, and I would say relatively accessible um, book that was published um, back in 2020 by this philosopher at the University of Utah. His name is C.T. Nguyen. Uh, he's great. He has interests ranging in everything from rock climbing to food criticism to <laughs> Um, like, at the same uh, time. Uh, yeah, sometimes at the same <laughs> time. Um, and he thinks a lot about things like um, like how social media and kind of the modern landscape influences our systems of value and things like mm. that. Um, but he's also deeply concerned with games. And so he published this great book. Um, I think I... I have it lying somewhere, but it's it's called Games Agency as Art. Uh, and yeah, if, if you're interested, especially in even just understanding what does it mean to have a philosophy of games and to think about their aesthetics, uh, I think it's a really cool place to start. Uh, he's concerned, as I said, with exploring the whole gamut of games. Uh, and in fact, that's kind of one of his um, central motivating ideas is the thought uh, the, the accurate thought that the literature on games so far has largely been concerned um, with, among a small number of other games, single player video games that are focused a lot on story. So the kind of things mm -hmm. that we do think about on With a Terrible Fate. And so he's interested in kind of broadening the perspective by self-consciously um, addressing a lot of cases from other forms of gaming, everything from sports like basketball um, to party games, tabletop games, uh, like Fiasco. Um, that if you don't know it, this very silly uh, tabletop game where basically the idea is to collaboratively tell a Coen Brothers style story where everything goes <laughs> wrong for your heroes. Um, oh so he, he has a lot of fun examples, which is part of what makes the book fun. Um, but to me, it's been very interesting because uh, I, I, I almost feel, having spent a lot of time with it, that by virtue of focusing on every kind of game but 
um, single player story focused games. Nguyen kind of overlooks some of the really interesting and rich aspects of gaming that we get from them. Mm. Uh, and so what I'm concerned with very roughly in my writing sample is basically broadening Nguyen's idea of the kinds of value that can enter into the sort of play he's interested in by considering what it means to introduce avatars or player characters into the equation, which is pretty interesting because, um, again, to make a very long story very short, Nguyen is concerned with all these different kinds of games, right? And he's concerning himself, uh, he's concerning himself with them in order to ask this question um, that I raised earlier in the podcast saying, okay, we can point to all of these familiar artistic qualities that games can happen to represent. But if we think about just games as games, what is the special aesthetic that makes them distinctive and interesting? Mm -hmm. uh, and so he points out those really philosophically interesting kind of gaming that is possible. And he thinks many kinds of gamers seek out, which is what he calls aesthetic striving play. Uh, and the idea is kind of complicated, but once you work your headspace into this, uh, it's I would say it's pretty accessible. The idea is just that we undertake games, uh, if we're this kind of gamer, to want to have certain um, aesthetic experiences of our own agency, where we can look at the things that we're doing and actually recognize certain qualities in them, like the gracefulness of a particular action or the harmony of finding the perfect solution to a challenging mm -hmm. problem and having to strain our capacity in order to do it. So if you imagine something like solving the problem um, of figuring out the next move on a rock climbing wall, right? And being able to just do the perfect twist of your hips in order to satisfy it and find a solution. He argues that that's something that is distinctive of gaming um, because games can invite us to do this interesting kind of motivational inversion where we go into games in order to have these aesthetic experiences. But in order to have them, once we're submerged inside of the game, we forget about our goal of having an aesthetic experience. And instead, we just single-mindedly take up the goal of the game itself. So if the goal of rock climbing, for instance, right, is to get to the top of the wall, right? I'm not thinking about oh man, I, I really want to have this special aesthetic experience while I'm climbing this wall. All of my practical reasoning is focused on, okay, I want to figure out how to get, get to there. the top of the wall. Yep. Within the constraints of the game, right? And that's the other important part, right? Games offer us these rules, these constraints, certain obstacles, and only certain tools and moves that are available to mm -hmm. overcome the obstacles, which is how they're able to kind of chisel these really interesting and rewarding experiences of our agency, because the game designer is able to construct these certain experiences that have a certain aesthetic quality when we step back and look at them after we've been single-mindedly pursuing the goal of the game. Right. Right. And I think part of what is, um, or, or where I intervene in this is, Nguyen then draws this pretty interesting and I would say kind of provocative conclusion that if we're this kind of gamer that goes into a game for the sake of striving single-mindedly at this goal and having an aesthetic experience from it, we have this really interesting and pretty unnatural experience of what he calls value clarity, which is just the idea that 
when we sit down in the game and see the various options before us in terms of things we can do, it's very simple and obvious what purpose they can serve and what reasons recommend using them. Because it's not like the real world where I have a bunch of different competing concerns of, oh, you know, I want to I want to apply to graduate school. That's one goal of mine. So there are certain actions that could recommend doing that. But, you know, I also have a dog that I love and want to take care of. So maybe I should do an action that, you know, furthers the well-being of my dog. And it's not obvious what action I might do would have what, uh, proportion of an impact on those various things. So practical reasoning in life, very muddy, very unclear, very hard to do. If you've lived more than a few minutes as a human, you probably understand this. Uh, <laughs> go to a game though. And because of the structure of a game, it's, it's very obvious what you can do with your actions because they were all designed to serve in the pursuit of the one goal that you've decided to single-mindedly pursue. If yeah. I have, you know, uh, like a rope, and climbing utensils, I don't really know how rock climbing works, but if I have climbing those tools fork. available to me, yeah, if I have my climbing fork and I'm hanging yeah. out, getting You're ready good. to climb a rock climbing wall, the only use that they have that is relevant to my pursuit is getting me to the top of that wall. I don't have to think about, oh, how good would they be as an implement for feeding myself? Uh, I don't have to think, oh, would they be a good weapon attacking someone else? All of those different practical concerns fade from view. And so just this one single value remains. And so I don't have to do any of the weighing or consideration of multiple values that is characteristic of everything we do in the real world. Uh, and Nguyen says some, some really almost poetic things, not almost, he says really poetic things about how that value clarity can be kind of a balm for the complexities of real life, because it, it can be so hard to figure out what it is that we're supposed to do, or even what impact our actions are having on our goals in the real world. But we sink ourselves into games. We find these simplified models of reasoning, and they're able to give us these crystallized uh, aesthetic experiences of our actions, which can then actually help us to understand what it is to act in certain ways, even in the real world. And so we can develop these new modes of actions in ways that actually empower us beyond the game. Pretty provocative and interesting, right? Um, and he, I think, um, you know, I, I kind of offhandedly mentioned Hoisinga with his Johann Hoisinga and Homo Ludens, his book about play. Um, and it's really interesting for me because I've read a snippet of Nguyen's work. And then of course I've read your, one of your drafts that is in yeah. conversation with it. And I think it's important that he, um, kind of, I mean, subtextually, but then I assume <laughs> very overtly textually references these early game studies ideas because what he's basically getting at is, okay, Homo Ludens was written when we played like hopscotch and stuff like that, mm -hmm. right? But now, as you're saying, Aaron, we have these games where, okay, well, how do we, and I'm assuming this is where you're going, um, <laughs> but how do we square the circle of um, using- Square the, the magic circle? Square the magic circle. <laughs> it was right there. I had it was to. right there. No, it was good. How do we how do we do that when we're using a toolkit that's provided to us for an avatar that also has like a goal? And how does that reflect on our life and our goals? How do we mirror the toolkit they were given in our real life? Right. At least that's yeah. what 
that's what I find interesting about it, which I, th- I, I think because of what you're writing, he does not address in a single player. No, game. he doesn't. What I will say, I mean, I would say so many things to Nguyen's credit because I am trying to intervene and uh, I would say challenge part of his view, but you're, you're um, not taking him to task on anything. <laughs> no, he's inspiring yeah. to me for so many reasons. And if anything, I'm trying to kind of extend the spirit of his view because mm-hmm. part of what he thinks that games show is how flexible our agency as humans can be that Definitely. we can do something like decide to take up a game for certain reasons, then during gameplay, let those reasons go and pursue some other goal on this purely instrumental basis just for the sake of experiencing the means to that end, um, which is very um, agentially convoluted, but says something pretty interesting about how flexible our agency is that we're able to do that very easily. Anyone who's ever played a game should at least acknowledge the possibility of this kind of play, I think. My my favorite example, um, so shout out to our friend Stefan, who recently got his PhD in game studies, right? Yes. When, when we were talking about, um, kind of different aspects of game studies and kind of the rules of play, we were going through kind of like the Latin words for that Hoisinger uses for different types of play. And what I thought was one is for, um, chance, right? Mm-hmm. And I just thought of like, imagine any situation you've been in where and it doesn't have to be this, but this is just a clear cut example where somebody says, um, you say like, okay, what kind of game are we going to play? And then the other person says, it's a game of chance. And you immediately mm-hmm. shift your brain into <laughs> yeah. what, what to expect, how to go about it and what the rules are. Right. Yeah. You get into that mode of play. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Without like unspoken, you just understand, mm-hmm. okay, here we go. Right. Yeah. So I think that, uh, I, I, yeah, we're. I know you're not, you know, going to war with Nguyen like we have uh, with other folks in the past. I think it's no, cool. It's just anything, like on it. He's a huge inspiration to me because, like I said, uh, or maybe I didn't say it, but a big part of what has been inspiring to me in terms of um, trying to go into academic analytic philosophy at this point is that uh, the kind of work that he does is now possible, um, mm-hmm. and that he's made this kind of contribution and he does tremendous work, even just in that book alone, in terms of exactly what you're saying, Dan, like bringing in works, foundational and recent works from game studies, which has a, a very different methodology and mode of interrogation than analytic philosophy, but introducing it to the world of analytical philosophy in terms and perspectives that can actually allow that other corpus of work to shed light on what Nguyen's concerned with and his foundational um, work uh, of like philosophy of games that he's building his own work upon is by this philosopher um, named Bernard Suits, who Mm. similar to what you were saying was doing his work, thinking about the nature of games in a time before video games had come about. And so it's a lot of bringing in other traditions, both in terms of being from the history of games and from other academic disciplines, uh, but creating a common language around them for analytic philosophy, which is no mean feat. It reminds me of what you were saying about like a conversation that Wittgenstein and Freud might have had where it's like, okay, game studies is amazing because it's breaking down games, breaking down play. Right. And then the philosophy of games and what I know you're interested in is I, at least my understanding of it would be like, okay, so let's take the rock climbing example. Right. So 
if we look at that and we say, all right, we have particular, um, particular rules and particular motions that we can make in this game, quote unquote, of rock climbing, um, a game studies perspective would say like, okay, well, what are you, what, what kind of play are you engaging in when you do that? Or what, um, what is the kind of setup for a game like that? How can we look at it like a game? And then Nguyen is coming in and saying, well, there's meaning and, um, and self-reflection to be taken from that game and how you interact with it and how your brain is operating when you're doing it. Right. And I love the idea that you're pursuing, which is like, well, that's true of anything. Let's not discount single player games because to do that would basically like be disregarding the avatar player relationship, which is the entire point of so many single player games. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this is, um, this is what I'm thinking about in my writing sample. Exactly. Is this idea that, um, I, th- I think it's a cool sort of amendment to what Nguyen is thinking about because mm. he has this picture of the aesthetic striving gamer. So someone who is engaged in this activity of playing a game, so as you said, in terms of game studies, like a, a certain kind of play where you struggle through a game for the sake of the the nature of that struggle and the constraints the game put upon you uh, to then reflect on it aesthetically and see the um the the artistic content that emerges I have fun here yeah right um and he sees the single-minded pursuit of the game's goal that happens in the game in order to have that broader experience as completely narrowing our practical universe to a single goal and a single source of value and so where i'm coming in uh, i'm trying to sort of amend his view to show that actually our agency can be in a certain sense, even more flexible than what he represents it as is this idea where I think, um, and I'm at pains to show cases where this happens in a lot of games, if not all games. And I, I have a feeling all games, but of course you can't prove that in the space of this kind of paper where you have an avatar or a player character, um, even if you're engaged in that kind of single-minded struggle and interested in the aesthetic experiences that emerge from that struggle, uh, you can't simply be choosing your actions with a, a like perfectly narrow attention to the game's goal itself uh, because those actions and the moves available to you are also going to be colored by the player character or the avatar that you're tethered to who has its own reasons within the game to be taking certain actions, uh, its own goals, um, which also pertain to your very struggle as you're working through the game. So there, there are a variety of different ways you can get your head into this, but, um, you can pick your favorite case that is like this. I think it's a nice, clean and illuminating one, something like the last of us part two, Spec Ops The Line also has this structure where even, and perhaps especially if you're interested in just single-mindedly pursuing the goal of getting to the end of the game or completing it uh, so that you can have the interesting experiences of activity that happen on the way between point A and point B, part of the nature of that struggle that is very aesthetically interesting and perfectly in your focus as you are striving towards that goal is the fact that everything that you are choosing in your single-minded pursuit is deeply bad 
for your avatar and is against their interests and is oftentimes supporting one interest of theirs at the cost of their broader well-being and all of their other interests. And so that kind of friction, I think, is, is a good way into what it is that I'm concerned with. I love that. I'm, I'm thinking of uh, um, at the end of Undertale when Flowey or Asriel, right? They, their whole like raison d'etre is basically if you win this, then I don't get to do this anymore. And mm. I love the idea of like, you know, we've talked about this on podcasts and in writing before, but that, that feeling of your goals being at a crossroads with the goals of the, um, yeah. the avatar, just like by virtue of what you're doing, I think is enough to write a paper about <laughs> which you've done. <laughs> Another really fun one that I love. Um, and I think I told the Tales of Praxis stream this, but it's just, it's, it's such a nice moment of cosmic kismet because as you know, I've been living inside the tale series since <laughs> time immemorial at this point. Um, but it gave me really um, fresh access in my random access memory to the perfect example to use in this exact paper. Um, because I, uh, I know, I know you haven't played through all of Dawn of the New World yet, um, mm. but we've we've talked about the ending, and without major spoilers for it, uh, for people who are interested in playing it, um, I do think while it's one of the lesser known and perhaps I would say lesser regarded Tales games, it also to me is one of the more ambitious and structurally interesting ones. Mm. For instance, uh, it's it's a perfect. Uh, game to complicate Nguyen's case because remember he's concerned with thinking about these games where we're just single-mindedly pursuing the goal for the sake of everything that happens along the way and the aesthetic value in that um, I think and I'm interested in your experience here Dan but I, I think it's perfectly natural to say okay you're thinking about single-mindedly pursuing the goal of a game here's one goal that can be just reaching the end credits of a game because oftentimes, I know at least this is the case for me, when I'm sitting down to play a new game, like that's how I'll organize my practical thinking. You know, sometimes yeah. it's the end credits, sometimes it's getting the platinum. Like that's yep. that's how I decide what I'm going to do in the game. But the, I'm not sitting down and playing the game in order to see the end credits or just show off the platinum trophy as much as it might seem like I want to show off the platinum <laughs> trophy. It's for the sake of everything I experience uh, and the quality of my actions along the way. Now, something that's really fun about Dawn of the New World is that if you have that as your goal, where you're organizing all of your practical actions around reaching the end of the game, um, and you're just trying to plow through it for that. And you do what some people actually do, where they literally pay no attention to the story or cutscenes yeah. and just fully submerge themselves in the gameplay of saying, okay, I know how to get to the next checkpoint. I know how to win fights. So I'm just going to do that until I get to the end credits. If you do that in Dawn of the New World, you will actually reach a fail state at the end of the game <laughs> instead of rolling the end credits because the interesting twist at the end of the game and what you need to do in order to get those end credits is lose the final fight, which you can only really tell if you have a bare sensitivity mm. to the values and goals of your player character, because that's what's decisive in which outcome you need to make well, possible as the player. And that's so interesting too, because even, even before you get to that, right? the the setup of dawn of the new world unless you're like a weirdo who got 
Well, I won't say that. <laughs> Unless you're you're maybe you're a kid who got on to the New World and you didn't even know Tales of Symphonia was a game before that, right? Or you're Dan Hughes and you're lugged to your friend's apartment (laughs) where he makes you join a stream of it before you've played Tales of Symphonia. (laughs) But I I did know about Tales of Symphonia, so at least I had a leg up on that weird kid I'm describing. Right. But um, I think that, you know, barring that, right, which I have seen, you know, people do play games like that, but take that out of the equation. The majority of people who play Dawn of the New World will have played and loved, presumably, Tales of Symphonia. Mm. And so if you're like me and you, uh, so I have a different experience, but I really played Tales of Symphonia for like ever. I, play, I think like 300 hours or something in one, one yeah. you know, long gameplay session. Um, I had to really struggle to remind myself that this isn't Lloyd's story anymore, right? But mm. if you go into that game and you even barring like the, I just want to get to the end credits. If you go into that game with an attachment to tales of symphonia, which you will have, if you've played it, mm. then you're going to be like, why do I care about Emil and Marta? I want to, I want to see what, like, I want Lloyd to win because I like Lloyd mm. and I don't believe that he's mm-hmm. a bad guy. Right. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. is such a rich thing to in, invest in, yeah. investigate for the kind of thing that you're writing. Right. This idea yeah. of like, well, I can't ignore that I have that connection and that attachment to this character who I'm being told is bad now. And I just don't want to believe it. Right. This is one of those things too, to, um, kick all the way back to what we were talking about earlier, uh, when we started the podcast is really so richly rewarded by doing like a series wide playthrough of something like the tale series or just your favorite long running game series, because, um, outside of context, it can feel like such a non sequitur that Dawn of the New World is heavily choice-based. Like things that you do as a player will pretty frequently lead to different outcomes and forking paths in the story, which is pretty unusual for a JRPG in general, very unusual for the Tales series. Um, But especially when you think about it in conversation with Tales of Symphonia and in conversation with the emphasis that Tales puts on players thinking about the content of their own actions, uh, I think it's really a surprisingly and delightfully fitting way to have a sequel for Tales of Symphonia, where, as you said, Dan, like you get such attachment to these characters who navigate really hard decisions about their own world uh, and you get invested in the decisions that they make and then you turn around and you have all of those um, systems of meaning according to which the world was decided and Tales of Symphonia questioned and subverted and you're forced to make decisions on your own with very little leg to stand on in terms of context uh, or what is or is not justified based on what you got so attached to in Tales of Symphonia. And it's really, it's special and bold for, a, not just for a sequel to do that, but for a game sequel to do that by radically changing um, the structure of its gameplay and how you navigate it. I'm thinking of, I think the first decision is whether or not you show respect to a statue of Lloyd. That's right. And if you're the a- very first decision. If you love Tales of Symphonia, you're going to say, well, screw what Emil is thinking. Like I'm showing respect to Lloyd, right? Mm-hmm. But yep. Emil probably doesn't feel that way right now. <laughs> he certainly doesn't feel that way. He right certainly now. doesn't. Nope. Yeah. Nope. I oh man, I love thinking about it like that because I think uh, that makes me want to go finish it. 
on my long list of games to finish. Yeah. And that's so um, fun too. I hadn't even considered that, but the very first choice, uh, yeah. it, we, we talk so often about, uh, well, you talk so often because you're a film studies man and you have that great article on Final Fantasy VII Remake about how you know the first cinematic shot of something yeah, tells the whole story just by showing you what the entire story will be in one shot. And that first choice kind of does that too. Like the very first challenge in the game is whether or not you're going to put words in your avatar's mouth based on your expectations coming into the story as the player of Tales of Symphonia. You're in a town that um, that Lloyd and company rebuilt, right? Um, yeah. That you understand has changed but has great fondness for him and your first choice is do you show reverence or not? That's a huge, yeah. it's a huge deal. Yep. Oh, man. Well, I think I've got a lot to chew on. And uh, I'm really excited to read the the finished draft. Which draft are you on now, by the way? Are you on like seven or something? <laughs> Your favorite Final Fantasy title. That's right. Seven exactly. You got it in one. Number seven. That's right. Uh, yeah. Well, let's hope so. Because like I said, the, the first app is due in a couple of days. So it better be lucky number seven at this lucky point. Lucky number seven. Or, or as uh, as the uh, thriller film would call it so seven evan <laughs> that's right <laughs> your favorite seven related <laughs> joke <laughs> seven, evan. Oh, but man. uh yeah i mean it's to to kick back to what we were saying about just games and and thinking and life the universe and everything i mean mm. as crazy as as this work has been it's edifying to me for all of the reasons that game analysis and working through games and art with you um is also so rewarding this idea that the more we really sit down and interrogate uh and and ask the you know stupid kid socrates i know nothing question of why <laughs> and just genuinely in a good faith way try to understand like all right what is going on here mm. what is my interest uh and how do i fit together all of these seemingly disparate pieces of this work of art or this aspect of human nature or anything else like that to me has always been the beauty of philosophy um, and art criticism and everything in between. The fact that the more you really um, put the screws into like narrowing in on that and thinking through it in a principled and logical way, it's not just the matter of making a better argument in terms of convincing other people. It's a matter of actually mm -hmm. working through and coming to understand what is going on there in a way that you didn't initially. And I've, I've really like, I have reformed my own thoughts and discovered new ones in working through this. Uh, and I know I speak for both of us when I say that's a big part of what we try to achieve for ourselves um, and for other gamers uh, in terms of thinking about games and the magic of their stories and everything in between. Definitely. And it's awesome that, you know, we still find so much enjoyment in it. I think that's the, that's the other piece that I'm really grateful for because I feel like, uh, you know, you, you, play games for a long enough time, or I guess you watch movies or something, you know, whatever you engage with something. And when something like surprises you or really gets your, your brain kind of juiced up, you're like, Oh man, okay, cool. It can still happen. Yep, yep. <laughs> and it sounds like from just hearing you describe what you've been writing and the fact that you're on your seventh draft and haven't like, you know, set your house on fire as far as i can tell that you're still really <laughs> at least not the portion it. of it you can see <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> i make no promises <laughs> oh man well i think uh you know a bit of a longer one but didn't feel that way so we got some uh 
I know it. Well, we got some we got some good talking points. So I think um, you know, you you all know by now what we do, but um anything in particular you want to shout out, Aaron? Coming up? Uh I mean, I think just the obvious and most exciting, which is that in less than a week, you and I and our fellow buddy and analyst Matt McGill will be hanging out for a little holiday reunion yeah. of sorts at my place. And so I would be shocked if we didn't put together a podcast. Uh, and I know we have some streaming plans too. So if, uh, if you don't believe, or it's not evidence enough in the podcast that we get so much energy vibing off of each other in terms of digging <laughs> into these exact issues, uh, better believe you'll see it when we're all in one physical place. And I'm, I'm tremendously looking forward to that. Yeah. I'm psyched. I know, uh, you know, the, Pokemon DLC, the final DLC comes out on the 14th. So I'm going to be a, a good boy and wait until you and I can stream it together so that we can <laughs> see it together for the first time. I'm excited about cool. that. Um, and You'll have to that, explain yeah. to me the first DLC, but I'm sure you can do that. And and I owe you after you've sat through enough uh, you know, JRPG can, length explanations before we started my streams. I can explain it right now. Are you ready? Give uh, it it's, it's literally... I'd be shocked if it takes 30 seconds. Um, kid realizes that he is not the main character of a Pokemon game and gets really angry about it. That's the deal. Oh man, that's awesome. I love yeah. that. So this is the thrilling conclusion to that along with a lot of other cool stuff. So I can't wait for that. Yeah. And uh, it, it'll be fun to see <laughs> what the, uh, what the Bamco gods have in store for when we stream together uh, with Matt, because either <laughs> We will be on like the the final final conclusion to the main arc of Tales of Graces F, or we will be in the F part, which is the fourth act with a very different tone and context that they added afterwards. So Ooh. either time it will be a romp. That's interesting. And I've never played the fourth act before, so it should oh, be it would be, really it would be so fun. It'll be like my Dawn of the New World experience where it's like yes. my my introduction to graces is just the extra part it's like it's like if i yeah, if i came to your house so this is what we'll do the rest of my stream will be we're going to play uh just the maruki part of persona 5 royal <laughs> <laughs> perfect i love it there we go yeah. <laughs> a plan takes oh, shape <laughs> perfect well look forward to that everybody and take care of yourselves and we will talk to you next time cheers everyone